Hello, this is Matt Burgess from the New Zealand Initiative. Uh, welcome to our podcast. I'm joined today by the former Chief Executive of the Electricity Authority, Carl Hansen, currently an advisor at Strategic uh, Strategic Investment Advisors. Is that the one, Carl? Capital Strategic Advisors, yes. Thank you. Very good. It's good to have you here, Carl. Now, yeah, last week... Be here. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you published a wonderful research note um, on the blackout, which occurred on the 9th of August, 15 days ago, as we record. And you went through the events of that evening and the sequence of steps that led to 35,000 North Island homes losing power for two hours. And you identified a specific event that led to the outage um, or likely led to the lights going out. Uh, can you walk us through what happened? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. And perhaps, you know, before we just get into the details, I think it's worth mentioning that there's extensive planning and scenario testing that goes on ahead of any winter period. And, um, you know, that that testing showed that uh, there was sufficient generation to meet the highest peak demand, even even in you know the coldest winter, uh, bar just a couple of circumstances. And, and basically what happened on the 9th of uh, August was that everything that could go wrong in those scenarios went wrong. So mm. it's a very cold, um, extremely cold day that uh, was sweeping across the whole country. And that led to a record demand. Um, and, it was an all-time record, with, wasn't it? It was an all-time record. And the, but the issue yeah. with it was that the forecaster at the system operator at Transpower didn't kind of know the impact on demand until it was too late for the big units at Huntley to be turned on. And so that combined with the fact that, uh, you know, there was quite a strong storm going up through the central North Island meant that uh, weeds got blown into the Tongariro catchments at one of the power stations went out there. But oddly, there was actually a lack of wind in other parts of the country where the wind turbines were. So, with all of that combined and with uh, an ongoing gas supply kind of issue, um, everything that could go wrong kind of went wrong in terms of the system being very tight. And kind of to compound that and, and actually really kind of, I guess, cause the power to be turned off to households uh, was Transpower kind of miscalculating um, the demand reductions that were required. Uh, so we ended up with demand increases for some industrial consumers and too bigger reduction in demand for households. And so their power was completely cut off and that's the way it turned out. So, so potentially out, you know, we may have got away with it. Uh, you know, if, if the right demand calculations had been made, it looks like, um, you know, the, the supply uh, reductions would have only been street lighting and hot water cylinders, which people don't really, you know, notice and don't, don't lose too much sleep over. Which is fairly extraordinary, isn't it, given that combination of circumstances. The highest peak demand uh, ever seen in this country, I think it was 7.2 gigawatts, with fairly limited warning and a, and a surprising sequence of events. And we could have got through without any lights uh, being put out at all, but for a single issue. But nevertheless, as you said, the system was tight, wasn't it? Probably the most significant capacity-related outage that we've seen in this country for quite some time. Uh, what have you made of the government's response and also uh, the response from the opposition? Yeah, well, that's right. Um, well, in terms of their response, you know, I think, you know, any Minister of Energy is going to ask questions uh, and want to seek reports and some assurance on behalf of people in New Zealand. Um, so, you know, it's good to see that. But I think what it tended to kind of move into a bit too quickly was apportioning 
blame to various different parties before all the facts were known and you know, somewhat probably egged on by an opposition that I think needs to get a little bit more mature about these situations and wait for the facts to come out. So, you know, calling for the minister's head to roll kind of just adds to the intensity of, uh, of that kind of political activity. What we really want to see is um, some cool heads prevailing as we have with COVID and the politicians turning to the experts as they do with COVID and uh, this case, that would be the independent market regulator, the Electricity Authority. So the Electricity Authority, uh, as you say, the independent regulator since 2010, you were its first chief executive. What's the authority doing in response to the blackout two weeks ago? Well, it's undertaking a two-phase review. Uh, the first phase is having a look at TransPower's demand forecasting tool and how they used it and what went wrong there. And they intend to report on that in the first couple of weeks. And then a longer review that's looking at a range of factors, including whether there was enough generation available and whether there's any improvements that could be made there. So I think, you know, that's a very sensible way to go into the short term and get that done and then take a, uh, a very considered approach to the more gnarly issue of um, the broader underlying set of factors. I think part of the shock of, you know, it was an outage for less than 2% of households that lasted for about two hours, albeit on a cold night. So actually quite a serious event. But I think a good part of the shock of the blackout was just the fact that blackouts don't really happen anymore, at least not for a capacity reason. Um, they happen on and off for technical reasons when things go out every now and then, not affecting more than a few hundred or maybe a thousand or so households at a time. This was a larger scale, more serious event than we've seen for quite a long time. But blackouts used to be a lot more common in the past, particularly the 1970s, I think. Uh, and in the Herald article that we published this week, actually, you had a uh, really interesting chart showing how much less frequent uh, capacity-related blackouts have become in this country uh, since the wholesale market was introduced in 1996. Can you tell us just what's basically changed over the last 50 years that have led to blackouts becoming so unusual? Yeah, I, th I think it's very good to, to raise this. Um, you know, the current system isn't um, completely fail-safe. I don't think any system is. You get blackouts occurring in all electricity systems. The United Kingdom, they had one in 2019. Europe, a big one in 20, uh, 2006. And the US and parts of Canada in 2003. So, you know, I think one thing that's really important for people to appreciate is that with electricity systems, they are very fast systems. Electricity travels at the speed of light and you know, the complex systems that have to be got right on a second by second basis. So events will occur, but you know, the independent International Energy Agency identifies New Zealand as a world-class system. And I think what underpins mm. that is that we have clarity with the role of our various different players in the market. So you've got the Electricity Authority we talked about before who uh, monitors the developments in the market, whether it's security supply or competition, does independent analysis and has the power to make rule changes. You've got the system operator at TransPower who's doing the operational side and then you've got a set of competitive generation companies in the market. Um, you know, people mostly think about the four or five large ones there, but in total, we have about 30 or more generating companies supplying the wholesale market. Mm -hmm. 
So what you get from the kind of market system that's in place is strong incentives for parties to invest in capacity if it's going to be needed and uh, to run that capacity when it is needed because, you know, when demand is high, prices are high and they only get supply, they only get paid, sorry, by supplying electricity. So, you know, if there's a reasonable bet that you're going to get dispatched, um, then you're going to offer your plant in and, and you will uh, earn the revenue when you get dispatched. So, um, you know, I think it, you're right that there were a really quite large excess capacity, if you like, in the 1970s, but we still had two uh, significant blackouts then. In the 1980s, uh, we had two blackouts, and then the big one in 1992, which actually led to the formation of this wholesale market and the way that we do things now, because it's really about decentralizing the decisions, not having them all concentrated into one organization or in a political kind of configuration. So much more decentralized, competitive, with clarity around what people are doing and the right information incentives does appear to be delivering good outcomes overall. Yeah, one of the things I was struck just in our conversations is that in the past, we were getting blackouts much more frequently at a time when there was a, there was sufficient generating capacity in the system, actually more than enough than we have, actually a greater margin than what we have today. And yet these blackouts were coming along much more frequently than they do today. And that's, I guess, comes down to the fact that it's not just a question of how much capacity you've got, it's the mix. And today you've got uh, which is actually a pretty complicated problem because you've got a lot of degrees of freedom there. You've got a lot of different types of generation. Some of them have to be in particular locations because of geography or geology. Others can go anywhere, particularly thermal generators. But of course, the government wants to phase those out towards um, emissions reductions. And across all of that, you've got to solve the problem of, of distributing the energy across the country and do all of this affordably. So it's like this giant Rubik's cube of trade-offs that have to be made. Just massive complexity. In fact, I think it's so complicated that there are still parts of that optimization problem that's, that can't be modeled. I think hedge contracts make it still very difficult to fully model the system. And yet, ultimately, through the wholesale market, you've got all of this complexity being dealt with, as you said, in a decentralized way. And actually, after 25 years, uh, despite the events of two weeks ago, you could say that actually the system's performing really well. We have affordable, affordable by world standards electricity, green electricity. I think we're the third most renewable in the world behind Norway and Iceland. And actually, comparably reliable compared with other countries and more reliable than it used to be. So actually, we've got a very, very good system in this country. And I think it's just amazing how quickly you saw commentators jumping on this idea that there's something wrong with it and we need to change on the back of that uh, quite serious event two weeks ago. It's, um, you know, actually New Zealand's got a jewel, I think, in its electricity system. It's surprisingly good given the tumultuous way it came about in the 90s, but we have it. And actually it's working better than just about any system in the world, I would say. What do you think? Well, I think all of those things you've covered are right and, uh, you know, covered in our article. And um, I think people are just not quite aware of how much additional generation has been built since the wholesale market started. Um, you know, about half of the capacity that's there now has been built. And, you know, there's been old thermal plant retired, but nevertheless, new, you know, a really significant amount of capacity has come on board 
and not so much in the last 10 or 15 years because demand has been flat, so it hasn't been needed, but the projections are for demand to be increasing with greater electrification so that we can take advantage of our wonderful renewable energy. And so, you know, already announced about 700 megawatts of new generation, some geothermal and some of it wind, costing around about 1.8 billion. And it's, you know, four or five different players that are coming up with this, these proposals that, well, these announcements, what the what they're actually doing um and then what we're coming into the mix now um as you say because you know there's lots of different ways to skin the cat here is some parties actually announcing that they're going to do some large-scale solar farms up Mm. in the um north island it's amazing totally surprising to me it's great to see yeah and you know that's great that's what entrepreneurs do and you know there's some independent reports that have been prepared for MB and others saying, well, the place you do solar is down in the uh, in central Otago, where the land is of poor quality. But, you know, entrepreneurs actually come up with ways to solve the problems that they're facing and they're choosing to put them in, in places where they think they're going to get the best returns. And, you know, I think that's going back to the kind of broader issue you said about it being a quite an intertwined complex algorithm to solve in a way well that's what pricing does you know the Mm. the pricing patterns that come out of the wholesale market mean that if you're an entrepreneur looking to make an investment you are always thinking well where's the best place to locate what's the best type of technology to bring into the market how can i can secure the customers to bankroll this and so you know people will will be bringing an investment to capture new demand and outcompete the parties that are already there. And that's what we're really seeing starting to happen. So I think, you know, there's two big questions in in people's minds about our electricity system. One, I think, is uh, their excess profits being earned. We'll come back to that in a moment after a report that we saw come out yesterday. Mm -hmm. The other question is capacity. And as you say, we've now got a 25-year track record, which shows that the current setup based on the wholesale market, based on different companies competing, investors putting their own money at risk, actually does build and retire generation capacity as as you'd expect in any market. There's still the forward-looking question of whether that's going to keep happening, whether there was overbuild 10 or 15 years ago with wind and geothermal, and now that that's becoming exhausted, whether new build and enough new build is going to come online to keep the lights on as we have electrification and the the sunsetting of, of gold and gas potentially uh, in this country, you know, there is just that question of will enough capacity come online quickly enough under the current system without any further interventions from the government? Can you can you just give us assurance that that's what the system is going to deliver and that we can have some confidence that it will? Yeah, look, I think the way I characterise it is that the incentives are strong players want to come in and they've got the technology and a superior cost proposition, they will come into the market. And you know, the cost of capital is very low uh, at the moment and looks like staying, it's, it's going to stay very low for quite some time. So I have heard the generators talking about, um, you know, look, the, the carrying cost, you know, what if you make an investment and it turns out the demand increase from electrification isn't quite there. Well, they're saying, well, look, the interest rates are so low, it actually really doesn't matter uh, whether mm. you're carrying a bit of surplus capacity. And so that's why we're seeing all of those announcements, which actually add up to 700 megawatts. We need around about 
on average over the next 30 years, we need around about 490 megawatts a year. But at this early stage, uh, the 700 megawatts looks to be plenty. I think the key reservation I would have is really around the ability for uh, players that need to get resource consents to be able to get them yeah. when they need them and get them in the time frame that's needed and for the transmission capacity to be there. So I think that's the key area for government to focus on is reducing the hurdles uh, while still protecting the environment and getting the right trade-offs. But you need to be able to, you know, in this world that we're coming into, uh, we need our generators to be able to plan and have some confidence and pursue a portfolio of new generation projects and all of it adding up to being the increments that we need to meet demand. And I'm very confident that will happen. But, you know, heck, uh, that's where I want the focus of government is on uh, the regulatory hurdles, particularly around consenting. Yeah, and I understand it's it's wind farms that get hit hardest with um, by the RMA and, you know, obviously the electricity system is downstream from that. And I suppose through the wholesale price, they can do quite a lot to attenuate demand while capacity comes online. But, you know, if it takes five or 10 years to get a project designed and funded and then consented before it's finally built and generating anything, um, that's going to constrain the electricity system in exactly the same way as uh, the RMA constrains the housing market. Um, well, one of the things I'll... we could just jump in there is that there is currently a stock off consents. So, you know, it is true that, there, you know, there's a, quite a period of time required but you know these are forward-looking parties and they will always be focusing on how to build up their stock of consents uh, so that mm. they can take advantage of opportunities when they arise you know it is a very dynamic market and a lot does depend on where the ty stays beyond 2024 but you know naturally when there is uncertainty about that kind of thing then it actually is wise to hedge your bets but uh, what we want is a system that's agile and dynamic and can respond to uh, the circumstances as they play out. And um, I think the key thing is I'm not I'm not observing any major kind of problem right now for new investments. I think the incentives are strong and there's a stock of consents. But I would think that over the next 30 years, the pace has to pick up. And that's why it'd be prudent now for the focus to be on on that consenting regime. Can you see renewables really stepping in and, and affordably filling the role that coal and gas fills at the moment, which is to effectively be a, a hedge for, for dry years? You can see it on the chart that when hydro generation in a year falls, you see coal and gas stepping up to fill the gap. So it's called firming, I think. Can you see renewables, how much of that uh, firming role that coal and gas have have played, how much can renewables fill that role affordably? And how much coal and gas do we need to hang on to indefinitely? I mean, a great question, really. And, you know, a lot can change in the future, but on current pricing of wind and solar, where the prices are coming down all the time, but nevertheless, they're not the kind of plants that can be turned on to meet particular circumstances. So, you know, in a long way in the future where wind and solar can be complemented with battery technology and a lot of capacity there, yeah. then they, they could be good for solving short-term intermittent you know, peaks like we saw on the 9th of August. But, you know, I think it will be a real stretch to think that they're ever going to fill the gap of the seasonal uh, shortages that you get with a dry year event. 
So, you know, I think we're always going to need some gas-fired generation, and I think the Climate Change Commission has certainly accepted that, and in their projections, mm. they still have quite a role there for gas-fired generation. I think gas is far superior from a uh, perspective of, A, it, it can fill the seasonal gap, but it can also fire up very quickly to deal with the, the daily peaks. So, and it has much lower carbon emissions per unit of energy than coal. So mm. I think going forward, that's that's a superior technology to coal. And that's what we're seeing the sector moving towards. I think the government is doing this investigation into Lake Onslow and the what they call New Zealand battery because they're looking at a wider range of options. And I think it will be very interesting to see what comes out of that. And, uh, you know, we should talk about that in the future when it does come out. But, you know, obviously all the information will be publicly available. And if it's handled well, then it could actually improve opportunities and broaden the scope of the various parties that want to invest in backup generation for the tri-year events. Yeah, that's the huge danger, isn't it? That um, something, you know, Onslow is not tested on, on its merits. It's the government forces it into the market on a non-commercial basis, it can't do that without much broader consequences. I think firstly for just for other players and their willingness to compete against this behemoth generator in Otago that sells um, potentially below cost. And secondly, just the broader institutional perspective that once the government's intervened once in such a heavy handed way, it'll be hard for it to promise not to do it again. And it just seems to me that that must create the risk that uh, other investment could uh, be put on hold indefinitely, which would all but force the government's hand to step in again and again in order to secure supply for lack of other investment coming in, having disrupted the market so seriously. So I'm not sure how much of what I just said is actually going to be taken into account in this business case that uh, MB are working on, which I think we'll see at the start of next year. I hope they are looking at it because, um, you know, the risk is that the government deliberately or inadvertently tips a lot of decisions that currently uh, sit out in the sector into the hands of officials or even into the hands of cabinet. And I just think that the system, officials and ministers need to be fully aware of that's potentially what we're talking about here with something as big as online. Yeah, and I think you make very valid points there. And, you know, would have been better, I guess, if the focus, first of all, is on, well, look, we're happy to investigate a range and put out public information about it. You know, maybe in the similar kind of way that government does a lot of technical work to explore the options around offshore oil and gas. That's what they used to do. And then, you know, because information's more of a public good than many other things. But the way that Onslow has been brought to the public attention has been kind of jumping ahead of investigations and, and kind mm. of making it more of a proposal than what it may turn out to be. And we've seen this happen in the past in the 2000s in response to uh, the 2003 dry year event. We had the government decide that it was going to build a diesel-fired generation. So it contracted with Contact Energy to do that at Furunaki. And, you know, brought in that and it decided to pay for the capital costs of that by levying consumers. And whereas all of its competitors were only going to get their money from selling energy to the market. So, you know, already there was a undermining a private investment in reserve generation for dry year events. But they promised, you know, that they were never going to run 
Furunaki, uh, when the spot market price was less than the cost of diesel to, that's needed to run the plant. And of course, in 2008, it turned out with a dry year event, we also had very significant increases in the cost of diesel. And so, you know, that meant that the market price would have to be quite high. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was because of an election year or because of people buying off the market, expressing, you know, you know their, their concerns about how much they're paying. Uh, you know, you got the government effectively reneging on its, you know, ironclad commitment not to ever run it when the variable costs uh, was above the spot market price. And um, so breaking that pledge really you know caused a lot of dysfunction and really led to the whole regime falling apart and the government ended up actually having to sell the Furunaki plant at a, a really quite whacking loss for the taxpayer they they uh, i think the whole thing cost about 150 million to build and they ended up selling it for 33 million so it was a 78% tax loss for for taxpayers on that and and largely because the plant was actually in the wrong location but because they wanted to do things very quickly and it was a political imperative rather than a commercial uh, mm. decision, you, you get these kind of blind-sided uh, developments that don't work out very well. And I think, you know, the kind of, that sort of reinforces the kind of points you've just made about Onslow. So, look, I'm just really uh, hopeful, uh, hoping at least, um, that um, the information from the New Zealand Battery investigation is laid out and... Um, and that investment developments opportunities are left with the participants that can take it forward. There's been, you know, some very interesting ideas around using hydrogen, uh, using green electricity, mm. renewable electricity to produce hydrogen and ammonia. And one of the wonderful things that comes out of hydrogen is it's a highly flexible demand source. So you can, you know, you can ramp your demand up and down to match, um, you know, the energy that's available. And you can also, it's also a way of storing energy. So there's something in the order of probably a third to half of New Zealand's storage that we need could potentially come through hydrogen storage. I think the big issue there, of course, is that it's very emergent technology and the costs are very high. And whether it's in the money in the next 10 years is, is something for entrepreneurs to work out. Yeah, you've got a system there that lets anybody come in and generate anyone who has a consent to come in and generate or build infrastructure at their own cost and risk and try things. And that's a that's a really nice system because it means that taxpayers aren't exposed and people capture profits if if they succeed and they take the losses if they lose. And um, ultimately, the question is whether it can generate electricity affordably and enough of it to keep the lights on. And that's actually a pretty good system. I really like your point just then as well about you know the political test has to come after the technology or the merits test, the economic case. And um, I think one of the things you've seen is under this government is that the political test keeps coming before the case for something is is made. And the, the example that comes to my mind is a 100% renewables policy. So that was a political commitment that obviously preceded any analysis. Every subsequent analysis bar one, I think, including one by me, has concluded that it's a disastrous policy and the government you know, it was one of the few policies um, they effectively, it was one of the highlight policies at the last election in, in 2020. The government actually doubled down on the 100% renewables policy, having had advice, including from its own expert interim climate change committee, who quite rightly said, this is, this is just a really expensive way to cut carbon. Just about every alternative you have government is better, including Onslow. 
So do that instead. So, and yet the government having made the commitment just cannot back down. So yeah, I just like your point there that the case, the business case for Ronslow has to be delivered and it has to be rigorous and, and well done because it's a complicated question before the government makes any firm commitment to it. And I don't think the government has actually, I don't think they have a policy yeah. to build Onslow, but my gosh, it gets talked about so much that it's almost as if they have made the commitment. It's almost feels like a done deal. It gets talked about so much. I, somebody once told me that, you know, Megan Wood's answer to every question is, um, is Onslow. <laughs> uh, the answer is always Onslow. What was the question? I think they said. So it's sort of, Onslow has become a, a, a solve all type solution, which is getting dangerously close to being a done deal in advance of the business case. So let's hope that, um, you know, not quite enough political capital has been sunk into it to make the test redundant at this point. Right, let's um, move to the other big question for electricity of excess profits. We have we have a market system. We have, as you said, 30 generators, but really five big generators get all the attention. I think there's been persistent skepticism or doubts or questions about whether these people are creaming it at our expense, consumers' expense. We had a report delivered yesterday by the major electricity users group of a study that they commissioned, which apparently has been 15 months in the making, that targeted one of the major generators, Meridian, and the study found uh, large, it said, large excess profits for Meridian under an economic, I would call it EVA, but EPA, what does that stand for? Economic Profit Analysis, I think it is. Yeah. Large excess profits to Meridian over the last 20 years. What what do you take? What's your take on that, Carl? Well, look, I, I mean, I've got two kind of main points about it. One is, you know, a test for listeners that you can easily apply to these kind of situations, and that is that the major electricity users group is a grouping of big business. So you've got New Zealand Steel with eight hundred million dollars of revenue, you've got Fonterra with fourteen billion dollars worth of revenue. You know, a whole range of them, Hoji Fiber and others. And some of them, in fact, those first two I mentioned actually have uh, some of their own generation. And so you kind of got to ask, well, you know, look, over the last 20 years, if you really could make a killing out of generation, why haven't you done a whole lot more of it? Um, you know, it's an open system here. You can build generation based on the resources that you can secure and the consents that you can secure and you'll get connected to the transmission grid or the local distribution network, depending on where you're needing it to be. So, you know, that's that's sort of number one. Over a 20-year period, you really, as a big business, need to be looking after your own interests. And that's part of if you need to have a supply of generation at a price, then you go and do it. If some, If you think the rest of them are overcharging you. And so that's a big worry that, you know, they don't back up their talk with action. And they, the major electricity users group have had an invitation for bidding for a power purchase agreement. And, you know, they haven't really been upfront with where that has got to and why that hasn't progressed. I think the second aspect of this, you know, this test is really, you know, we've got other players in the sector that have got deep pockets. Todd Energy with, you know, its deep uh, involvement in the resource sector, well known for uh, liking profits. It's only the sixth largest generator in the wholesale market. Heck, if there's so much money to be made from generation, why are they not building a lot more? And Trust Power would be the same, you know, it's got an owner, 
who is very canny, likes to um, pick up great opportunities, and yet they're only the fifth largest generator in the market. So mm. you kind of got to really question, you know, does this kind of academic analysis that Mug have, has released, does it, does it stand up to common sense? And then sort of the second kind of main point I would make is really around the methodology that they're using. It seems to me, without wanting to get into great detail on it, that it's it's kind of an accounting exercise rather than you know looking at the economics of new generation. So it's never a good thing to be looking at, I guess, the accounting of what has happened over the last 20 years without also thinking about, well, what does this mean for entry into the sector? And you know, what does it mean for um, the cost of new generation coming in? So in a market where marginal costs or the cost of new entry uh, is very static, if you had a market like that, then maybe that kind of economic profit analysis could be useful. But that's not the electricity market. The marginal costs of new entry have been changing quite substantially. Um, and, and so has the short run marginal cost with the shortage of gas that we've been facing. And I think the other way of thinking about it, which, which maybe is a bit similar, but really their, their analysis is really about average. Um, what's, the, you know, what's the return on the assets on average over the last 20 years, rather than this focus on marginal costs. And it's always going to be the case for any business in any industry that when the marginal cost of new supply is going up, then those that are already in the industry uh, will actually benefit from that. And they'll earn higher profits. But you're in also in an industry or other industries where if marginal costs are going down, like in the computing industry, then you know you as an incumbent uh, sticking to old technology, you tend to lose. So that's the nature of markets. And I think it's it's a fool's game to be trying to bring accountancy into what really is a dynamic market and where it, it really is about understanding the nature of the market and how, you know, what are the economics that underpin it uh, rather than trying to recompute profits. And also to think about the consequences of, of a misstep on the back of what may be the application of a methodology that's actually not fit for purpose in a fairly dynamic uh, sector like electricity. You know, the risk is that if you've, the way I think about it is that you've taken a backward looking methodology and pl applied it to a forward looking question of the question of entry incentives for the next best, most affordable generator. If the test is, you know, uh, against depreciated costs of assets that were built 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, and the government acts on the basis of that methodology. Well, where's the new generating capacity coming from? You know, if you're if you're forcing older generators to price near their depreciated cost, how do you expect to get new generation built as electricity demand rises, as old assets are retired, and so on? Uh, and I think two other points for me is, as you said, the electricity se uh, sector prices uh, its product in exactly the same way as every other market on the planet. This is how markets work. There's nothing special about electricity. And if you think that there's a problem in electricity, then you also think there's a problem in um, every other sector you can think of. And just, I think, again, the point you made, you just mentioned, but it's actually really important. Anybody can come into the market. Uh, literally anybody can connect, um, build a generator, whether it's solar panels on their roof, whether it's a hydro dam out the back of the farm on a small lake, anything. 
you can connect it to your local lines company or to the national grid and sell it at the best price you can find somebody who's willing to pay you. It really is that simple. And so the challenge, again, what you said was, if there's all that money to be made and anybody can come in, why isn't somebody stopping for a moment to pick up that $20 bill on the sidewalk? You've just got a basic process protection against the claims that are being made here. And I think the presumption has to be that there's a problem with the method or that there's some hidden and quite general barrier to coming into the electricity market that um, I'm not aware of, and it sounds like you're not either. Well, that that's right. I mean, I think, you know, where I would put my focus is on uh, making sure that we continue to, uh, wherever possible, increase competition, especially in the dry years. Yes kind of world um, circumstances, you know, gas is dwindling and gas has been a really important uh, resource for backing up wind and solar. So it's really important that that market is competitive and that there's access to the resources there. If you're an industrial consumer as the members of MUG are, then, you know, they'll be interested in uh, mm. having a steady supply of energy, electricity to them that matches their demand, which tends to be flat. 24 7 365 days a, a year so you know geothermal is a ideal kind of uh, generator for them and so you know it's really important that, that the government makes sure that uh, the barriers to accessing geothermal resources are as low as possible and i think it also comes down to onslow as well you know making sure that if that is the step ahead um that it's not only left to private investors and it meets the market test. But more importantly, or just as importantly, that um, it does not go into the hands of the existing incumbents who already have a very strong position when there are dry year events. I think we want to be pro-competition here. And, you know, let's, let's be smart about this and focus on what matters rather than calculating some form of or recalculating accounting profits and... Um, uh, not really appreciating how that or may or may not relate to this kind of market. It can be relevant for some kinds of markets, but it doesn't seem to be particularly useful for this market. Um, I mean, uh, for me, it's a bit like you know the housing market. You know, um, we know that the um, house prices have gone up uh, to a large extent because of uh, higher land prices and restrictions there. But but we also know that there is a portion of it due to the um, cost of building new houses itself has gone up to some degree. And you know, that means that uh, everybody that owns their existing house is got a higher valued asset. And naturally, people do revalue their assets um, when the, the price in the market has gone up sustainably. Uh, just as when the price in the market has gone down sustainably, um, then you actually write down the value of those assets. So I am mm. a little bit uh, mystified, really, about some of the underpinnings of the um, the analysis put out by Moog, but look, you know, it's early days and we'll, we'll have a chance to dive into this more as time goes on. Okay, Carl, I'm going to put you on the spot with a last question. Uh, this has been a tough time for any Minister of Energy, including the current one, disrupt the gas supplies, a blackout, probably the most serious in some years. Um, other things going on, high electricity prices, uh, wholesale prices and so on. What, if you had to give the Minister of Energy uh, a rating out of 10, what would you give her? You like to ask these tough questions. I'm not <laughs> going to go, I'm not going to go into that. You know, look, I, I think what matters is that 
um, the minister uh, needs to be cognizant of the complexities in the market, the kind of experience and learn the lessons from uh, the 2000s where there was intervention that didn't really, you know, was based on ill thought out kind of solutions that didn't appreciate the interconnectedness of what goes on in the electricity sector. And um, it's just really important that uh, the reason why we've got an electricity authority set up is for it with the professional uh, skills that it has, the expertise and the fact that it consults uh, widely um, and it draws on the expertise of the system operator and others through advisory groups that it is left with the mandate to make uh, next steps around rule changes either to deal with anything they find from their investigation about the um, blackouts or as they're already working on uh, to improve the market to be able to better deal with um, this transition to 2050 and a, um, a low emissions economy. So that's that's where my focus would be. Very good. Carl Hansen, thanks for your time. All right. Cheers, my pleasure.